Welcome, welcome to the Premier League Proven Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff, with my co-host and brother, Kevin. And today, we are going to go over all of the craziness that's gone on in the Premier League this year. Everything that you need to know to stay up to date with the league. And how our predictions and things that have surprised us as the league has played out. Because sports, if they're one thing, they are always unpredictable. And I think the first thing that's re- really interesting this year, well, not interesting, but uh, kind of it's put a, it's cast a shadow over, I think, the entire game. Not unlike, I think, the NFL in some ways, the NBA in some ways, but it's the refereeing crisis. And it's not just refereeing, it's more... It's almost a VAR crisis, um, but I think more than that, it's also just a refereeing crisis because VAR is just technology that is used by people, humans, and referees that already weren't necessarily the best, but at the same time kind of were the best in the world. You know, it's it's kind of this interesting cycles where everyone thinks that their league's referees are always the worst, and yet when the NFL brought in their replacement refs, all these types of things, and, w- and when you go down and they bring up a championship ref into the Premier League for a week or two, you see that there actually still are levels to how bad you can be at referee. It's almost like it's a hard job, and hashtag RoboUmps. I mean, why stop there? You know, Let's get Robo players in, and maybe you can give me a controller, and I can play the game myself. So I think that might be the future of where leagues should go. Yeah, and like you said... I- all all the sports, you know, I think baseball also has a subjective element as well, but every sport essentially has such a subjective rule set. And they ask the referees as the athletes get more and more competitive, as the scrutiny on every call becomes more and more, as we have better camera angles, more higher definition, better slow-mo. All of these things make it so that the mistakes that I think tons of people accepted in the past as mistakes you know the hand of god goal in maradona's one of the most famous goals of all time was just a blatant handball you know the fact that that can just happen in a world cup game like obviously refereeing has always been in some ways pretty suspect and it's just because of how difficult it is to referee the game but var i think has highlighted that because The one thing VAR has done, it has changed our expectations for what we are expecting the referees to be in soccer. And like you said, it's still humans making decisions, even if they have it at a million different angles, if they have slow-mos. There's subjectivity to all of these decisions, and you're just not always going to get it right. So I think it's a really valid point, like you're saying, people just have a lower tolerance and what's a bad call. But overall, it's probably referees are making better decisions than what there were in the past. So it's always good to take that with a grain of salt whenever you hear this referee crisis. I think another thing that you've kind of talked about before on this show is how much of a punching bag it is to talk about referees. Anytime there's a a close game or a game that goes one way or unexpected way, like the easiest thing to do as a pundit is just to say, you know, I can't believe they blew this call. I mean, perfect example is going to be Spurs City this last week, and uh, they kind of botched a an advantage call. And City fans are now like saying, you know, I can't believe that referee took two points away from us. City were going to win that game. When in reality, Jack Grealish had three defenders around him at you know the 50 there is wasn't exactly like this was a, a ball that was going into the net and they blew it dead so 
Uh, it's just something easy for for you know players and coaches and pundits to kind of glob onto. But one of the things that I've kind of been disappointed by is speaking of that same game is I thought referees this year and I thought the PGMOL was focusing on making sure that players weren't abusing uh, referees in the game. You should see some of the stills of of Erling Holland freaking out uh, at the referee at the end of the game. He he looks like a child throwing a temper tantrum. And, and it's not just City that does this. Every single team does this, like every single game, just surrounding the refs, going nuts. And they've, they've kind of done it with the obvious yellow card. You know, asking for the yellow card, they'll give you a yellow card and kicking the ball away. But you can still get away with uh, kind of abusing the refs. They've tried to make it so that only the captains can kind of talk, which I think kind of works sometimes. But yeah, they're never really consistent with these things. And when they implement a new kind of standard for these types of new ways to, you know, try to prevent dissent and things, it seems like it only lasts a few months at best. Yeah, it's like any kind of authority right it's it's kind of a thin veil of what real authority is and if you start chipping away at that and if you start letting players you know verbally abuse referees or really get in their face or you know even threaten them in any kind of way like you really lose sight of that you kind of lose that air of authority and you know the game is worse off after that and it is interesting you know the actual authority of the referees like do you think that there's been a significant impact on how players are kind of reacting because there's so much discourse now about how bad the referees have been. It kind of, do you think that kind of encourages players and coaches to kind of focus on this because they know that that's an avenue towards where everyone else will nod their head and say, yeah, you're, you know, the refs are terrible. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think now that you get more scrutiny, I think there was a time where, you know, even if it was a bad call, the call was the call and you you kind of kind of moved on with it. But now you can get on social media, see, you know, 60 different replay angles of this event. And then you, you kind of feel validated. You feel like, you know, obviously, look, he made this mistake. And the other thing is, you, you, you've said it before, all these guys are humans. Like in some way, having someone yell at you is going to influence your decision even at the tiniest margin or fraction, it still does. So if they're not going to give yellow cards, what's the downside of, you know, yelling or accosting the referee? Yeah, and just to jump back into what I was mentioning before, where I think VAR has changed our expectations. VAR being extremely interventionalist, especially this season, but also I think for large parts of last season, in that they are going back and erasing goals for small stuff. They are going and awarding goals for small fouls. They are influencing the outcome of games whether you think those are the right calls or not very frequently and a penalty in soccer in part this is part of the problem is that var is awarding penalties which have about an 80 to 90 percent chance of going in and in a game where there's only three four goals you're literally awarding one-third or one-quarter of the points in a game. It's like a, it's like a referee automatically awarding two touchdowns in football or, like, 40 points in basketball. Like, it's truly, like, on one foul call. Like, that, the swings are absolutely monumental. They're huge. They completely change the individual games and, therefore, change entire seasons, careers, all these types of things. And the fact that they're doing it with a kind of, heavy hand in terms of they're intervening on small decisions means that there will always be another five small decisions that could have gone either way in every game. 
So now that you've basically said, opened the doors and said, this type of small foul or this type of slight where it might be a foul, but are you quote unquote re-refereeing the game where, you know, it's probably a foul, but it's not like a, it's not a foul that every single person down at the pub would agree is a foul, but maybe like 60% of them would. Should that be overturned? Because if you start overturning those fouls, there are plenty of those things that get missed in a game, especially in the box, right? Where people are grabbing hold of each other all the time. Handballs can are extremely subjective. Red cards where you're kind of going in with your studs on this guy, and sometimes that looks worse than it is. And if you if they dodge it, should it still be a red? Like all of these things are so subjective and can go either way that when you start overturning calls and changing games everybody starts asking in the future well you did this on this game now look at this somewhat similar thing that you just ignored here and it makes it kind of makes a mockery of the entire refereeing process i think that's such a good point on just the way soccer is designed and like you've said before it's so unique to every other sport where you're just giving you know, really, really changing uh, the expected outcome of the game. And I'd even take it a step further with the red cards. It doesn't just influence that game. It influences potentially the next three games. So it's like a four-game swing. I mean, a great example of this is you know Christian Romero for Spurs getting sent off. Now, of course, he probably should have been sent off earlier um, in, in that match, but he basically cleared a ball in his own box and followed through with the studs. It took viewing it for two minutes to determine if it was a red card or if it was a yellow card. Well, now Spur, it ended up being a red card and Spurs go down a man in that game. And then they're also without their best center back for three more games. So like that VAR decision has potentially cost, you know, Spurs, who knows how many points at the end of the year. So it's, it's crazy how much that really influences the season. And I think to me, the immediate my immediate thoughts of how you could kind of change that there's two ways for number one is to kind of become less interventionalists and i think everybody kind of would like that because people don't really want to especially in the fa- in the stadiums all it shows is like a var thing on tv we can watch the replays but you can't see those replays in the stadium uh so it's it really does negatively affect the the stadium culture and kind of the energy in the stadium to just sit there for a minute and a half while they kind of just keep replaying things that you can't tell what's going on or what's likely to happen. My first thought would be just become less interventionalist. Spend 10 seconds. If you can't figure out that something is a red card or a penalty within one to two views of it, just move on. Um, It'll take the delays out and it'll make it so that people don't expect every little thing to become a penalty start questioning the referees why this small thing became a penalty but that small thing didn't just say it this is super obvious which i think is what the intent has was originally supposed to be if this is super obvious then just change it and there shouldn't be that many of those super obvious moments and if you can try to at least build consistency in that way i think people will accept it more they still probably won't accept it very well but the other the second way and probably the more effective way is do it exactly like they did in the world cup and people say oh, this was great in the World Cup. Do you know why I think it went well in the World Cup? Human rights violations. Because they didn't show you one single goddamn replay. So you didn't have, so no fan could even see what happened. They would just say VAR check, VAR complete. They'd never show you the replay. 
And you know what that means? It means that nobody can even tell if there was a foul in the first place. And so there's nothing to complain about. And you could say that that's underhanded and all this stuff. And it kind of is. But if it makes it so it's very difficult to people love the way that seemed to work in the World Cup, just not being able to see a ton of exhaustive replays. And if you start letting people scrutinize every little detail, you know, you could argue that's better for the fans, and I think it kind of is, but it also makes it harder for the referees to adjudicate because now they're reacting to the scrutiny that they're getting um, based on all these calls. And they know that they're under pressure, and the way that they call games reflects that. And they it means they spend three minutes to do, make a decision on a game that's only 90 minutes long. It's crazy. Like, they're just, people are sitting around for like two minutes while they're trying to draw lines because they're just so scared of making a mistake. One, one last thing, too. It's been pretty crazy that the PGMOL has been putting together shows after the week to kind of explain calls. And it's just like the self gratifying team of just. Basically, they get one head ref on there. I think one time it was Michael Owen asking these softball questions, only showing decisions that were... And now they have Howard Webb running the whole thing, who used to be kind of the number one referee in England for a long time. Uh, but basically on the show, they were, they were saying, like, yeah, they're showing only the instances where VAR obviously got very, you know, obvious errors correct. And there's like, yep, look, great process. Good check, boys. It all looked great. And to me, that just, I don't know, something about that is wrong. Having, you know, another show based off of controversial controversial decisions. Like, I'm, I'm just saying it's like a bad incentive system for it. And also not having the consistency of releasing the audio. It's only when managers kind of get on their, you know, soapboxes and go into every interview and complain about it and then get fined about uh, complaining about it. But then they get their way and the, the audio gets released. So it's like, it, it's just refereeing crisis is the right way to describe it because it is just insane right now. And it just seems like the referee association has kind of lost the plot a little bit. I do blame them, you know, mostly. And then I think the frenzy that surrounds it just makes their job way harder to do. Um, so I don't know. There's a few ways they could try to fix it, but I think if they just step back a little bit, say, look, we are just gonna, we, you, we should, we're basically not here. You know, for offsides decisions, we can do all this offside stuff. But other than offside stuff, if it's an obvious red, we'll give it. If it's an obvious pen, we'll give it. Otherwise, you won't even hear of us. Um, and I think that's probably the best way. But we'll see, you know, kind of how they change things. They, you know, for whatever in soccer, because they're individual federations, you know, the English refereeing, this is also, I think, a major problem is that, uh, English refereeing is different than Champions League refereeing. And they give handball for every single thing in the Champions League. Literally an accidental handball that just somebody just kicked blasted into your arm, given every time in the Champions League. And it kind of makes a mockery of the Champions League, if I'm being honest. Um, I hate that. I cannot stand it. And if you think handball is bad in the Premier League, it is 10 times worse in the Champions League. And the fact that players kind of have to go midweek changing the rule sets that they're playing by is also just kind of crazy. But anyway, that's enough talk about the referees. We hear enough from them. Are we the problem? Are we the media that is inciting this referee crisis? Yeah, we are uh, We're big. We are big media here, and uh, we are very widely listened to, um, have a huge global audience. And uh, the other big thing that you cannot ever get away from is also gambling. And whatever sport you're in, gambling seems to have taken over everything. And it seems to have started to affect some players as well. 
Yeah, if you're probably listening to this podcast, you're probably the demographic that does the occasional sports betting, sports gambling, unlike ourselves. Um, but it's not great if you're betting on things that you can influence. You know, it's just more or less insider trading, but sports insider trading. And so something we've seen already this year, the beginning of the year, Ivan Tony, a great striker who had a phenomenal year last year with Brentford, uh, got his eight-month ban from the Premier League because of gambling and betting on soccer. So Brentford has definitely felt the repercussions of that. They are, they've not been as effective as they were last year. Yeah, and he's an irreplaceable type of player up top and, and scores goals and is you know probably their best player. Yeah, it's crazy too. You know, he was in the conversation for call-ups to England, and that's always really tough to do if you're not on quote-unquote one of the, the big six or seven teams uh, to kind of crack into the national team. And then some other guys that we've kind of seen get banned here is going to be someone that I spoke really highly of at the beginning of this season, and that's going to be Tonale, a phenomenal young midfielder that Newcastle uh, had and signed over the summer. Well, when he was in Italy, he was actually betting on illegal, like I think, I don't know if they were mafia run, but basically not legal sports books. And he was placing a lot of bets and apparently influencing uh, other players to make bets on those different websites so i completely get it and I, the guy seems like he might have some sort of gambling addiction issue so really hope he does get help with all of that but in the meantime he really has hurt newcastle because yeah they're fighting a war on a couple different fronts with domestic cups champions league and the league and they've been kind of running into their own injury crisis so having someone that is out for the entire season or for the majority of the season really really hurts yeah, and obviously to all the professional players that listen to this podcast, just don't bet on your own sports or really any sports in general. You, you'll you have enough money at the end uh, when you retire that you can bet all you want then. But the I think all the leagues do have to be very careful about protecting the integrity of these sports, especially with how prevalent gambling is becoming. But anyway, the last piece of housekeeping I think we really need to address is monumental news within the Premier League that could potentially send rippling effects out through uh, the entire Premier League now and, you know, for years to come. And that is the Everton point deduction um, that they suffered. And they were docked 10 points. So what that means is literally they have the same number of wins. You get three for a win. You get one for a tie. And the Premier League essentially said, whatever your point total is at the end of the year, we're going to take away 10, and that's where you're going to be. And if that relegates you, then that relegates you. So be it. And points deductions are not an uncommon thing in uh, Premier League soccer um, or really any league, which is, I think, completely unheard of uh, for an American sports listener. Like the fact that like a league would vacate wins from like an NFL team or like a basketball team or a baseball team is like that would literally just cause the biggest meltdown of all time. Like the worst thing that they do is like fine you and take draft picks in the Premier League, and and that's mostly because the owners would never let that happen to their teams, and the owners really run those leagues, whereas the Premier League is not quite as owner-driven in the same sense. Um, The Premier League is almost more important or above the owners rather than the kind of oligarchy that uh, our American ownership groups, um, where, you know, Roger Goodell is essentially working as an employee of the owners, the same is not necessarily true of the Premier League and really any sports league. So if you make, if you do the crime, you do the point deduction. I think that's how the saying goes. So, uh, yeah, only six teams have ever been, had points deducted in the English top flight. And uh, 
it's kind of really changing the entire season. Yeah, it's also something to remember that these are charges that were filed against Everton in the 21-22 season. And just to kind of take you back to where we were in that time, I mean, this, these are going to be COVID times still. So this made a huge impact in the finances of a lot of clubs. And really what ended up happening to Everton is they went about 20 million pounds over the limit of their like profitability. So their financial fair play, they're basically spending 20 million more than what they were allowed uh, based off of the profit they're bringing in. So obviously COVID made an impact that I mean, with any of these big teams, you know, there's such a monetary value that gets lost or gained if based off of where you finish, if you get relegated, if you get into all these different positions. So, of course, they have huge teams of lawyers, accountants trying to do all this kind of fancy stuff. And so it really comes down to whatever your fancy accountants and lawyers do. Uh, does it hold up in court? And to usually it's I think it's like a three person commission that was taking a look at their yeah, and I I think only one of them is related to soccer. I think the other one's like a judge and someone else is like some type of related lawyer or something. And if you're an accountant or lawyer or you just really love to nerd out about that kind of stuff, there's so much to unpack and to look into. Um, you know, Some of the stuff that Everton is doing that is well known is obviously they're building a new stadium. So that's a very expensive endeavor. But on top of that, they had some dealings and some naming rights that were already you know, kind of pen to paper with a Russian oligarch. Um, they had some deals with overseas conglomerates and companies that ended up getting sanctioned. So what that means is that income that's coming in based off of the war in Ukraine, Everton basically had to tear up those contracts and not get that money that they had already kind of put deals in place for. So it's those kind of things that really do kind of hurt you that are unexpected. And that's one of the ways that they tried to, to fight the ruling. But doesn't seem like it was very effective yeah and they have a british iranian billionaire who i believe iranian uh moshiri who spent a ton of money and put a ton of money into transfers at everton pretty much all of which failed um they're probably the only team that spends money worse than manchester united they just spent it on the worst players like literally their team just got worse even though they're spending like 100 million a year do you remember that season they bought like six number 10s with like Gilfie Sigurd and I think they brought in this was like Rooney when he was like a corpse of himself it was the most ridiculous signings ever their transfer strategy has just been so bad for so long it's you know all of this was coming where they were just kind of sliding down the table every year I think the reaction to the point deduction in England has been one of kind of extreme sympathy towards Everton I think people think in general that Everton has been hard done by kind of this isn't quite fair for them and part of that I think one of the things is that apparently they had a, somebody an official with the Premier League kind of at some point when they knew they were starting to get in a little bit of trouble they had somebody from the Premier League kind of sign off on all their deals um, and say you know does this fit within the parameters that were of what were the legal parameters uh, within the Premier League guidelines and, you know, they were trying to submit everything and be kind of above board. And apparently that wasn't enough for the Premier League. They did, they said, you know, just doing that and trying to, that was a too little too late or something like that. A lot of people think Everton had a rough go of this. It sounds like there's multiple clubs, especially the clubs that have been relegated within the last year or two, that are almost considering suing Everton in the Premier League because... 
when you get relegated from the Premier League, obviously that's a huge, massive blow to your finances of your club. Um, you may never get back to the Premier League, you know, for 30 years if you go down. So, and the money that you get from TV rights between the championship and the Premier League is absolutely massive. So those teams that were relegated, whether or not you think that extra 20 million or whatever they spent is what actually kept Everton up, I don't think it is, but um, you could argue that, you know, maybe it's weird that they basically committed the quote unquote crime two years ago. It affected the teams that got relegated two years ago and their punishment is this year they get the point deduction. Yeah. It's almost too little too late. And it, it seems, I think that's kind of goes into the equation probably at least a little bit, whether the Premier League would, you know, admit it or not, but it's to kind of deter teams in the future from doing and breaching FFP uh, because they just want to make sure that it's not worth the risk of getting caught to stay up and, you know, kind of keep those rights. But I think what you said about a little bit of the Premier League rallying around a team that obviously at some level committed probably some sort of breach of FFP, but it seems like fans in the league are rallying around them because Manchester City has about 115 charges that have been filed against them uh, over the last few seasons on breaching some of financial fair play. And let me be clear, I don't have, uh, I have not read through all of those charges and I am not an expert in any of these things. And they are not the same charges that Everton, I don't think, was accused of. I think a lot of these charges were essentially based on whether or not the funding that they had, especially in the early years, you know, in the 2012 time kind of time frame, was that funding all above board or did they kind of get extra money by using their owners, airlines and other things in other companies in the, in the UAE to funnel money into Manchester city that then allowed them to spend more money because they were pumping up their revenue artificially. So, you know, I'm not going to pretend to really know what's going on. It sounds like city fans and city kind of people think that this is something that will go away. Famously, the UEFA, I believe, had charged Manchester City with financial issues and found them guilty. And then they basically went to like the Supreme Sport, the Supreme Court of Sports in Europe, and they basically overturned the charges. But I think in part that was due to a technicality that I think statute of limitations had gone or something like that. Um, it all gets very murky at the top, and City can obviously afford the best lawyers in the entire world. So they, it sounds like they've set maybe a date, 2024, uh, or I think it might even be 2025 when they're going to try to adjudicate these claims and, and figure out what the poten penalty would be for Manchester City if there is a penalty. My, my suspicion is always going to be that City is not going to get punished for these things. Um, but the thing is, is if they are found guilty for this, given how heavy-handed the Premier League was with the punishment against Everton, if they find City guilty of, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 charges, what penalty could possibly be acceptable for them? I mean, you're almost talking like relegation, vacating titles, kind of crazy stuff that we've never really seen. And that would obviously send incredible shockwaves, not only through the Premier League, but through world soccer as a whole, um, I'm sure. This is not something that is going to, you know, either way, I think Manchester City fans, if if something 
terrible, if the worst of the worst happens to their club, then obviously they're going to say that things were biased and set up against them. And if nothing happens to Manchester City, every other team's fans are basically going to say, you know, everyone's biased towards Manchester City and they can just afford the best lawyers and get off and do whatever they want because they're rich. So I don't know. It's kind of messy days ahead, I think, in this regard. Who's the Kevin De Bruyne of lawyers that City has signed? That's that's really what I want to know. Who's the pep? You need a Kardashian, you know? <laughs> get a Kardashian in there. You get O.J. Simpson's lawyer. O.J. Simpson's lawyer's in there, you know? <laughs> yeah, maybe if Kim passes the California bar, you know, she can go over there and uh, start defending the sovereign state of Manchester City. <sighs> but you got to wear a wig or something for, like, judicial practices in the U.K. or something. Um, but anyway, the... You know, all of this, Chelsea also freely admitted some of their own crimes, which is interesting. Um, so we'll see if they get penalized. I think they had some issues with agent fees and things like this. Um, again, all of these crimes. Does Chelsea have like the Frank Lampard of lawyers over there as a manager? Is that, is that the, the parallel that we have there make, admitting the, the stuff that they're doing? That Frank over there just, uh, you know, they'd have Frank from uh, Always Sunny probably. No, they can afford the best lawyers in the world too, so... If uh, City's lawyers end up being successful, I'm pretty sure that they'd hear, get a call from... Uh, yeah, but Ch Chelsea has young lawyers, you know, fresh out of law school, building up uh, their resume. They got the potential, guys. Exactly. In 10 years, man, they're getting away with so many charges. All right, so let's let's go into... That was a lot of uh, talking about the Premier League, but not talking about the soccer. So let's talk a little bit about what the season has brought us so far. So we'll start with a couple things. Um, what is one of the best signings that you can think of for any team in the Premier League this year? You know, I'm going to be biased, but I really do think James Madison has been one of, if not the best signing uh, from this offseason. I think just look how Spurs have looked since he has kind of picked up a long-term ankle injury. They just look so much less dangerous. He was the kind of creative driving force uh, into helping them create all of these chances and I, I think everybody did think James Madison was a, a pretty good player but I think after you know his form for the first probably 10 or so games folks are you know thinking he is one of the best midfielders in the league and a definite definite mainstay in the English national team if he's healthy same question over to you I'm going to stick at the top as well and just go Jeremy Doku He's essentially completely replaced Jack Grealish and has already integrated himself into, I think, Pep Guardiola's starting 11, which is very difficult to do. I think most attacking players that come into Manchester City's squad usually take a year to kind of settle in, uh, but he already looks electric. He adds a, a different dynamic as kind of a dribbler who's willing to take people on, uh, and him combined with Holland, I think, makes City's attack just even more devastating than it was and he's really been electric and someone that I think not, you know, he was a good young player and, and kind of flew under the radar, I think, of the other top clubs. But it just goes to show you that Manchester City's transfer infrastructure is second to none. And so on another note, what's the biggest surprise for you, whether that's a team or a player in the Premier League this year? I think a biggest surprise for, say this is probably not for everybody, but more just kind of how I, I looked at the season coming into it is how kind of vulnerable City look. And uh, I'm saying vulnerable as far as Manchester City is, but 
for whatever reason right now they don't look like they are the killers they usually are and of course they usually tend to pick up steam and speed as the year goes on but at least right now they are you know kind of giving away games and dropping points that in other years you, you never would have guessed for them to do so you know i i do believe in pep and i really do hope if it can't be spurs it must be city to make sure that arsenal can't kind of clinch that premier league title that they've been chasing for years and years and years but yeah city just kind of looks a little bit vulnerable this year i think to me tottenham is the biggest surprise and i think this Tottenham is not going to end the season well because I think the end, the injuries have just caught up with them already. Um, and so I think it's derailed their train, but Tottenham and Ange um, Postacoglu has imp- made an imprint on the Premier League that I think very few people saw coming. I think he won three straight Manager of the Month awards, which is kind of crazy. Um, they were leading the league for a little bit, and they've just brought a kind of freshness an all-out attacking approach is kind of just like we will throw everything at you and dare you to outscore us and most of the time teams can't outscore them and it's crazy uh just how successful they've been with that approach i do worry about the long-term sustainability of that and now that they do have injuries it's hard to see tottenham really kind of pushing on um but at the same time, I think it's been a breath, breath of fresh air and, and shows you, even if in a team that's losing Harry Kane, you know, basically the best player in the Premier League um, or one of them, you can still have a complete change of ideas. And sometimes changing the manager can change the fortunes of a club. And on the opposite side of things, what has not surprised you about this season? One of the things that's not surprised me is going to be the the bottom teams uh bar wolves who i think i did have in the relegation spots which i think it was uh, a mistake with how how good huang he chan has kind of been looking this year but uh as far as the teams that came up from the championship last year it looks like all of them are outclassed by the premier league uh, they don't look like they uh, have a real shot at staying up and i think that's one of the biggest things that everton uh, has going for them this year is in previous years a 10 point deduction would have been the nail in the coffin and Everton would have almost for sure been relegated but this year I think those three teams are are looking pretty terrible as far as Sheffield, Luton and Burnley and I think Sheffield actually just sacked uh, Heckenbottom for being the first manager to be sacked this year and so it does seem like those three coming up uh, no surprise that they're going to struggle with the strength of this Premier League schedule. For me, it's kind of been Chelsea, um, where I think everybody kind of feels a little bit okay about them. It feels like they have good potential, but they're just not actually scoring goals. And it's kind of the same problem they had before. And I think we knew that this was probably going to happen where they have they play great soccer. They have tons of young talent, but they just don't have a goal scorer up top yet. And so I think at some point, obviously, with the money that they spend, they will find that. Um, and this, I think most people think that this team will just rocket up the table at that point. This season, I think, is also going to be a write-off where it's difficult to imagine them getting top four. But I think it's hard to imagine them not clicking into gear probably some point this year and really starting to turn things up and really start, you know, climbing the mountain to where they want to end up. If you just let XG equal goals, man, they'd be doing phenomenal. XG is such a basic stat. I mean... Just getting shots away does not mean chance creation. But anyway, that's why soccer stats are just uh, 
are rough. This now kind of takes us to your new top six. If you had to make the prediction for this year, and then on top of that, out of that top six, who do you have in the title race? So just to start with the title race and get those guys out of the way, because I think most people are going to have City, Arsenal, and Liverpool as the three teams at the top. It is, I think, interesting for the neutral to see that Liverpool has returned to form after a really off season last year. Mo Salah is still in great form. Their attack is in great form, and it looks like Van Dyke and Trent Alexander-Arnold have really recovered their form and are playing you know, as well as they have, I think, for a long time. Um, their midfield has been solidified by a lot of the summer purchases they made. Uh, and Klopp is just Klopp, and he's just one of the best managers in the world. So Liverpool knows how to win. They've been there before. It's hard to imagine them not being in and around the top. I don't think they quite have can hit the highs of the Manchester City. Um, and I think Manchester City are still going to be the favorites. You know, they're doing all of this without, you know, their probably second best player in Kevin De Bruyne. Some might even say the their best player. The fact that they can just, you know, lose a guy like, it'd be like Liverpool losing, you know, Mo Salah or Arsenal losing Saka. And it, you know, it's barely, nobody even talks about the Bruyne because they don't even need him. It's kind of crazy how strong their team is. And City, I think, just like a lot of the old, you know, great Premier League teams really turns it up at the end of the season. It would not surprise me for them to go on a 12-win run to kind of close out the year and and reclaim the top spot in the Premier League. But Arsenal is interesting, too, because they're actually not playing that well. It doesn't seem like they are. They have the really they have this really good trait about them where they are just scoring late goal after late goal, um, including a goal recently against Luton Town to win. It just doesn't seem like they're they're kind of fragile at the back sometimes. And it also doesn't seem like they're playing quite as free-flowing soccer as they were last year. But at the same time, they're still in first place right now. Um, so they're at the, at the top of the Premier League. So you have to absolutely take them seriously. I just, I think they're riding their luck a bit. They're, because obviously it's good to score 90 plus five minute goals. It's great for the morale. It's great for the fans. Those are the moments you live for in soccer. But those are not necessarily the things that are sustainable over the course of a 38 game season. And I just don't quite see them on the level, really, of City, definitely, and probably Liverpool as well. So if I had to predict, I think City's going to win it, and then Liverpool, and I think Arsenal will have a period where their luck kind of runs out. Yeah, I think that's really well said, saying those are the moments you live for. But you also have to think of, especially fixtures around this time of year, they come you know, pretty hot and heavy with how many games you have. And playing games to the 95th minute and having to push and, you know, run your body to the ground really does, you know, kind of take a toll on your body. And those are things that you, you kind of see uh, kind of come to back to bite you later in the year. And if you've never watched the Premier League before, the winter schedule is absolutely insane. Like literally every three days, they're playing games. Um, and these are games that are obviously very important to the rest of the year and if you go through a bad step have a few bad injuries if you lose a guy for three weeks at this period you might miss six games like that's crazy whereas you know in a normal part of the season you might only miss three so this is a, a time of year that is always really important and i think you see who's you get a better picture of where people are going to end up kind of a week or two into the new year 
Yeah, I think it's something that people don't talk about enough is just the momentum periods and how important they are. Because, uh, you know, soccer is so different. You know, there's no playoff system. And obviously in a lot of American sports or sports with playoffs, it makes a big difference if you can kind of get hot during playoffs. But it really matters for soccer too because you know, if your team is super in form in the beginning of the year, that's great. You had four games that you looked phenomenal in and then you run into an international break and you kind of lose a little bit of that momentum. Some of your players, you know, maybe go away and come back injured. So being able to hit the strides and hit your form in the busy periods goes such a long way and really does make a big difference in the title race. And I agree, those are the three teams that I have in the title race. So if we agree there, who do you think is kind of going to fill the Champions League places, which this year might be fourth and fifth place, and then kind of the Europa League would be sixth and seventh? Yeah, so I think I have it getting to be City, Arsenal, Liverpool, and first, second, third. Then I actually have Spurs going to sit in there in the fourth place spot. I think Newcastle is going to slot in that fifth just because of the injuries that they already have. But the advantage Spurs have is smartly got themselves out of domestic a domestic cup and smartly finished outside of European slots last year so they don't have to worry about those stupid competitions. Completely intended. Yeah, yeah, that's that's smart management right there. And so Newcastle, on the other hand, does have to kind of contest with those competitions. So I think that'll kind of get them in the legs. And then finally, I think Villa, who just look very, very good under Emery, I will say they haven't really gone and had a period of injuries like Spurs and Newcastle and some of the other teams have had. So I, I do think uh, if and when they do run into those periods, it's really going to kind of slow the momentum down, but they do look very, very good. And then finally, I think uh, United, you know, United's been a weird team this year, squeaking out a lot of one nothing wins, but you know, I, I do think they're they're obviously a good enough squad to, to get it done and at least get into those European positions. So I think Newcastle will probably finish fourth. I think their team is really good. The only thing that can hold them back is the injuries, which they've already had quite a few of, but their starting 11 is very high quality. Um, and with Ishak and Bruno Gmarish and Joel Inton, that is just such a solid core. Um, so I think Newcastle finishes fourth. I think Villa falls off hard. My interesting prediction is I think fifth is going to go to Chelsea. Um, I think Chelsea is really going to storm up the table um, the second half of the year. I think they're already a good team, and I think they will really develop into a team that's going to be one of the three or four best teams in the second half of the year. The fact that they're behind a little bit right now means that they'll only kind of finish fifth, but um, I think they're going to make a strong push and show you why they spent all this money on these young players. And then after that, Spurs probably, I would have six. I, I do I, I do really like this Spurs team. I do like Ange. I just, it's one of those kind of ideas where I really think he is a good manager and he may completely prove me wrong, but I just wonder about when somebody when teams start figuring out how to play against his style a little bit better because it does seem like they're still catching everybody off guard but the second time teams play against them in the second half of the year will that change at all maybe not um but i think this winter period is going to be really hard on spurs because they are just missing a lot of players and madison like you said has been so integral to their attack they just they're they're missing multiple key players up into the new year and by the time the new year rolls around there we're going to have another seven games or so played so i i think they'll fall off a little bit um but i think they have a lot of potential to prove me wrong and then you know i think united villa probably even brighton competing for that uh seventh spot united you know i think they have 
they're not drawing any games, and so it actually makes their point total pretty decent. They're really only, I think, two points behind Newcastle when at the time of publishing this, only three points behind Spurs, which if you would like, you know, just reading the papers and everything of how much crisis they're in and Eric Ten Hag losing the dressing room, all this craziness, you know, you'd think that they were in 14th place or something, but, you know, the team has played worse than their point total this year. Um, and it's, there's no, there's nothing really that makes me think that that's going to change. Um, they do have good players. It's just not working so far this year. And so maybe that changes that, you know, this, when you think about how long a soccer season is, right, August till May, 10 months, basically. So things can change quite a bit and tons of, there's a lot of years when teams are written off in the first half of the year and they come back in the second half of the year, something just clicks. And I think that's always possible, but I'd probably have uh, United sitting somewhere in seventh even. So in Villa in Brighton, kind of right around there. Would love to be proven wrong and We'll see what uh, happens and see if any of these teams are really, I think a lot of the teams are just a couple key injuries away from really falling off because even though the bottom teams in the Premier League are not very good, I think the middle teams in the Premier League are all pretty decent and you actually have to be on uh, on your game to really take points from them. And there's just a lot of teams at the top end of the table. You know, there's probably eight, nine, ten teams that all think that they can win most of the games that they play. So there's not as many free games. Well, there actually are kind of a couple free games, but other outside of those bottom teams, there's not very many easy games anymore. No, I think it's well said. Just win the games you're supposed to. If you just don't draw for the whole year, I mean, it goes a really, really long way in your point total. So I think that kind of wraps it up for this episode. Uh, thanks so much for taking a listen for us. Uh, as always, feel free to follow us on socials relatively active on uh, Instagram. I think we have a Twitter or an X or whatever the hell we're calling it now uh, out there. Uh, but we are kind of trying to push a little bit more of that content out there. So thank you for sticking with us. As always, feel free to share the show with your friends, whoever, so we can kind of get the, the word out there and we can become part of the media. So we can also have these terrible takes and you know influence the Premier League in one way or the other. That's the dream. Signing off. See ya.